chapter 26 of Leviticus. Now, as we come here, it's this final laying out of the facts of the blessings or the curses and some final things about dedicated things. And it's, it's got a lot here. So we're going to, I think we're going to be blessed. I know we're going to be blessed as we go through this tonight. So we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 26. It's the final exhortations from the Lord through Moses to the children of Israel in their new covenant made at Mount Sinai as they've agreed to be a nation with God, to be under God, and to have this relationship with him for the next 1,500 years, the nation of Israel, until Christ would come and bring the new covenant, the everlasting covenant to everybody. This is the Mosaic covenant. You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbath and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I will give you peace in the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. This is the part of the chapter we like, the first 13 verses. Now, the rest of the chapter is like not so good. Uh, It's like the warning of consequences of if you don't do the right things and what comes your way. So for application, we're going to focus on this for a little while because it's wonderful. And these are great promises for them. And there are principles for us, of course, as the church, because, again, all scripture is profitable, inspired by God to the benefit of all believers. And there's always the principles that come from the word of God for the church. And these are shadows of things to come. But we have the fullness of this in Jesus. So the first few verses just remind us of to revere God. Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We did a whole topical on revering God just a few weeks ago. So no idols, no card images, nothing. You just, you worship me the way I've taught you to worship me. And you do things right. And we know there in the Gospel of John, Jesus said the day is coming. We'll, we'll worship in spirit and in truth. And that's exactly how we're worshiping here tonight. You'll keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord, verse 2. So he just reminds them of just that reverence before him, that if we keep him reverent, it's kind of like Solomon said, the whole matter of, the, of everything in life is to fear God and obey his commandments. And that's what God is saying right here. You revere my name in a good way, and then you obey me, you get all the blessings. It's Everything I'm going to do in your life is good. And, but he sets the prequel to it like, hey, you don't build altars to idols. You don't do this. You don't do that. Because... That's not who I am. That will misrepresent me. You don't do church like that because that's not how I do church. And you don't build altars like that because that's not how I'm worshiped. This is how you worship me. This is the way it is. I've revealed myself and you worship me the way I've, I've taught you to worship me as I've revealed you as your creator, the creator of you, the created. So that's the, the prequel there to all this. And then he says, now, if you walk in my statutes, verse 3. So this is the promises. 
These are all these blessings that they were to have. And if we think about these as a follower of Jesus Christ, these are the blessings that we want to have. And again, the principles are there. So if we obey God's word and we do it, right? Like the New Testament tells us not just to be a hearer of the word of God, but to be a doer. So we know that if we hear God's word and we do it, that's what the blessings are, like the book of James says. So that principle of if we walk in the statutes, what God's revealed to us. Think of the gospels, the teaching of the gospels, the principles of the book of Acts. You think of the clear teachings of the apostolic writings of you know, the Pauline epistles, book of James, Peter, Jude, John, all of it. So the things it says to do and perform them, because faith without works is dead, that we, we live this life of faith and we do the right things, then we're in the place of blessings. So he says in verse 4, I'm going to give you rain. Now, obviously the context is an agri-society. We've been talking about this going through Leviticus. It's an agricultural society where it's everyone, and we'll see this even more so in chapter 27, it's farming. They live off the land. you got to do it. Now, this is kind of a trend with the millennials. They, they all want to go back to the you know, that, that communal farm type of thing, that little organic farm, and who can blame them, right? They, there's something about having that farm. Like my niece, Sarah, who's a graduate of the Bible, Calvary Chapel Bible College years ago, her and her husband live kind of outside Salinas when you're going up the 101 before you kind of go left to go to Monterey and Carmel. They live back behind those hills near Big Sur, and they, they've been doing this for a couple of years, and they, you know, they homeschool, they got the barn, they got the house, they got the chickens, the goats, all the stuff they're growing. Of course, they've had the fires, right? They've had to evacuate twice in the last three weeks. But they, they got this. So if we were producing all of our food, we would, again, the context of these blessings would take on a greater sense because we'd be so dependent upon it, upon the weather, the change of the weather, the farming. I've mentioned in the past, my grandmother Esther Truesdale, she grew up on a farm in Richland Center, Wisconsin, went to school with 12 people in the local schoolhouse in the the nine, like 1915, you know, that kind of range when she was going to school. But her number one goal was to get off the farm because farming is really hard work. And you milk the cows in the morning. Billy Graham grew up on a farm, right? Remember Billy Graham had to milk like 40 cows every morning before school? And he milked the 40 cows when he came home from school. It was hard work. So Billy Graham, whenever he preached to farming communities, like when you go to Omaha, places like that, he could just bring it because he, he could connect with the farmers because he had that credibility but for most of us me farming that's just like really hard manual labor and I try to avoid that it's part of being a pro surfer and I don't know what I say that facetiously but when I worked landscaping for my dad and had to dig ditches and stuff like that in Vista when it was 95 degrees I, I, I purpose to start winning contests and not be digging ditches because that, that kind of work is hard hard physical work it's backbreaking work and my grandmother Esther she moved to Madison Wisconsin to take a job as a nanny and bus tables to not live on a farm. True story. And that's how she met Fred, because he worked in the same restaurant, my father-in-law, or excuse me, my, my grandfather, uh, the brand that came from Norway, Fred. So that's how the Truesdales and brands met at a restaurant in Madison, like 1921. But at any rate, farming is hard, and you're so dependent upon the weather and these things and these circumstances. So Sarah, my niece, knows that up here. Fire puts you out of business. you got to flee for a while. So all these variables. So you'd be so dependent and you just live on the edge of like insufficient rain, early rains, latter rains, lack of rain, all that stuff. You just And really, we know a lot of the world lives like this still. Like a lot of Asia, you know, like is, is totally agro-society. When you drive around Japan, like you just, everything's agriculture. When you're not in Tokyo or Osaka, these big cities, this is all agriculture. 
and it's again dependent. So if we kind of put that hat on for a minute and think that way, we realize that you'd be so much more dependent than us how we do society in our modern era where we go to work, we make money, and we use our, our debit card to buy the groceries. And we've talked about this recently, but it just seems like, where does it come from? Like they just, the supply chain works. You know, there's regional distribution, and then it comes to local distribution, and it's there, right? But what if it wasn't there? And we had to literally every day had to pray that somehow that food would be at Albertsons on Beach Boulevard and that mothers would have stuff at the same time. Like what if we literally were dependent upon like our prayers and on our knees to get that and we weren't dependent upon this great nation, the infrastructure of this nation to provide that food. Well, that's what it was like for them. God designed it in an agricultural society that they were totally dependent upon the Lord. And he promised to meet their every need as they were obedient. But he also promised that they weren't obedient, that there would be consequences for it and it wouldn't go so well. So as we look at these blessings, think what he says to them. Verse 4, I will give you. Our God is a giving God. He's a blessing God. God so loved the world that he gave his son. He will give us the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. How much more will the Father give the Spirit to those who ask him? So seek, knock, and ask, Jesus said. Our God is a giving God, and he gives us the things that we need. And for them, he gave them rain in its season. The land would yield its produce. Everything would produce what you needed to produce. And it would last from the vintage time until it was time to sow. See, there's no gap. You see that? Like the cash flow, really what God is saying here, I got your cash flow. Did you catch that? I've got your cash flow. you like... When, when you do this, it'll get you to that, and then that will get you to this, and they'll repeat the cycle here, and you're going to always be in the black economically. You're not going to go in the red. It's going to be a solid cash flow, and you're not going to have to worry. God's going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. He, look at verse 5 where he says, You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land in it safely. Isn't this what we all want? I mean, really, this, is the, this really is kind of like if you study human history and you look at, again, like European history, during the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, all the monarchs and all the kings and the allegiances and the wars, the endless wars in Europe and stuff. What is it? If you, the Mongols, everybody, you look at what people want. Even look at China pre-World War II before the Japanese invaded the, the average Chinese citizen and what they want. What, what people want is they want, they want to eat bread. They want to have a full stomach and live in peace. People want to have a full stomach when they go to bed and know that the Huns aren't coming tomorrow night to you know, destroy their village. This is the most basic human thing, so provision and protection, to have provision and peace. And what does God promise right here? Provision and peace. And what does God promise the believer of Jesus Christ? He promises the same thing. The New Testament affirms that God promises us provision and peace. He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. The Father knows all those things before you even ask. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things, what you'll eat and what you'll wear, they will be added unto you. It's a promise. As far as peace goes, Jesus says, my peace I give you, my peace I leave you, not as the world gives, give I to thee. He promises us provision and peace. So no matter what would unsettle us in our external exterior environment, we know that on the practical side, Jesus promises our provision and peace for our soul, no matter what's going on. And as you study church history, as you study people who have been through many great afflictions serving Jesus Christ, you will find that their, their descendants weren't begging for bread in the city and that they had peace no matter what the storm was like. And whether you're studying Eric Little, the great Olympian who became a missionary in China after he won gold, you know, chariots of fire, and how he died and how his life ended in a Japanese internment camp, or whether you're studying Amy Carmichael and her ministries in China two, three generations ago, no matter who you study, 
the, the testimony is always there that God meets our needs and he promises us peace in the midst of the storm. And that's something that we can really lay hold of tonight because we can get unsettled over where is this all going? Are people going to keep building houses? Are, is industry going to continue to prosper? Is the stock market going to handle the, the election and which way is it going to go depending on what happens? Is the election going to solve anything immediately? Well, the whole world's waiting too. You know, like, of course you all know planet Earth's on hold right now. Like everything's on hold right now, pretty much, for the whole planet waiting to see what happens to our country because we impact and affect the whole world. And it could be quite unsettling. There's a lot of things out there that would be unsettling. So whether you're a believer in America or a believer somewhere else in the world, it doesn't change what's really at, at, at stake for us with the promises of God. God is going to provide for us. And though it may seem like the ninth inning and all hope is lost, he will come through. He always comes through. And he will meet our needs as they are defined by him for us. And he's going to keep us in peace. You know, some of us might face our worst fears in the next few months or the next few years. I don't know. But I do know this, that what was true for Israel in this covenant is true for us in Jesus Christ. That if we seek first the kingdom of God, he'll provide us what we need and he'll keep us in perfect peace because our mind is stayed upon him. He'll give you peace in the land. So peace with the Lord is what we get. And Romans chapter 8 makes clear no one can take that from us. He says in verse 7, you will chase your enemies. Five out of verse 8, five of you will chase 100 and 100 shall put 10 to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. Now they have literal physical enemies that constantly try to invade them raid them, plunder them, and subjugate them as vassals of their power. Babylonians, Assyrians, Edomites, Ammonites, it's, it's endless how many people tried to rule over Israel. For us, our battles, of course, are spiritual battles, and our weapons are not carnal but mighty in God for tearing down strongholds. That's why Franklin Graham is leading thousands of people in a prayer march around D.C. this weekend to be reminding all of America that to, to, this is a spiritual battle and we need to pray with spiritual, we need to use spiritual weapons in a spiritual battle, and we need to be praying for our nation, and we need to be praying for the situation. And right now, more than any other time in our human experience, we need to be praying, and we need to be the five that puts to flight 100. We, we need to be the 100 that put to flight 10,000. We need to be those people, those kind of women, those kind of men in our prayer life. This is no time to be dulled, desensitized, and, and living in despair. We need to be filled with faith, optimism, and a positive disposition because Jesus is on the throne. We're alive and we're called to pray. And we need to pray. And so many promises are based upon our praying. And we are in a spiritual battle. And who knows where this is going to go. But when we continue to go forward in the coming months and coming years, if the Lord's tearing, we want to know that we did our part at this time, at this juncture, without any regret, that we did pray, that we did our part in Jesus' name, under the blood of the Lamb, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, to move mountains with faith and prayer for good things, for a future and a hope, for our children and our children's children, and for our nation and for this planet. God is, God is love. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. So we want to move our prayers toward peace and love and healing and 
reconciliation and restoration. And we want to send this darkness hanging over this land of destruction, affecting all people of all walks of life. We want to send it back to the pit of hell. That's what we want to do. Because it's destructive, what's going on in our nation. It's lawless. And the lawless one is the lawless one. So we need to pray. And our prayers need to put 100 to flight for good. We're praying for good. You know, Franklin Graham said that the prayer walk this week, it's not a political thing, and it's not. It's a prayer thing. And he encouraged people, please don't come out endorsing candidates of any sort whatsoever. We're here for Jesus. And we're here for Jesus. We don't know all things, but we know his word, and we pray according to his will. And blessed are the peacemakers. Then he said also in verse 9, if you do these things as an individual and as a nation, I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, confirm my covenant with you. Verse 9, isn't that what we all want to have for our life? That the Lord would look upon us favorably and make us fruitful for the things of the kingdom. That he would multiply our ministry, the fruit of Christ in our life, that he would confirm his covenant with us, that we would just know the Savior so close and so intimate, and that we reflect the life of the Savior so close and so intimate. It's so wonderful when you know that you have God's favor on your life. It's just so awesome, like, when you get used by the Lord and you sense his favor on you. It's such an incredibly powerful thing. When I was called into ministry, when I felt that maybe I sensed that I was being called into full-time ministry or pastoral calling, it was in September 1987. And I went to Tri-City Hospital. My mom had a friend who was passing away. And she asked if I'd go by there and pray with her. And I I knew this woman. And I I walked in that room at Tri-City Hospital. This was a person like a day from eternity which all of us will be at some point. And I walked in that room, and they were, they were super agitated. They were, it, it, it's hard to explain. There was an agitation, like if it was Star Wars, a disturbance in the force. It was just this agitation. You could feel it in the room. It was just all this tension. This person's passing. They're, they're travailing in their body. And it was, it was, if you've ever been in a room like that, it was, it was radical. And I'm like, I was still a pro surfer. I was like, wow, like, well, here I am, Lord. I just learned Psalm 23. I just read it for the first time. And I, I walked in this hospital room and I began to pray for this woman and the Holy Spirit so filled that room like Joe's worship tonight. I mean, the Holy Spirit so came upon that room. I had never experienced the Holy Spirit, the presence of God like that in that room. He came in the room. He filled the room. He guided my prayers like tongues of fire in my head and perfect peace came upon that person. And I shared the gospel with them. I shared, I prayed the Lord's prayer over them. I remembered all, uh, the uh, Psalm 23 over them. I remembered all of it. And it was absolute peace. And when I left the room, I was like, God just met me in this room. That was one of the, I've never, for all that I ever experienced in my life, that was the most amazing thing I'd ever experienced in my life. So when Brian Broderson asked me to go in ministry a few weeks later, I was like, no, but that was there. And it's not always like that, but it's a pretty amazing feeling what it is. Because even when my father-in-law was passing this last week, when I walked in the room, God gave me favor. The eyes are open. He's listening. He's communicating. I'm probably the last person that saw my father-in-law with his eyes open 
with full cognitive capacities communicating with me the gospel and pointing which direction Jesus was coming from. And what a privilege and what a blessing. And when I went to go pray with my father-in-law just about 10 days ago on the Friday, the Holy Spirit filled that room. So powerfully, the hospice worker said, I got to go. They're not supposed to leave the room. You know that. The presence of the Lord. I was like, you're welcome to stay. It's holy ground, but you're welcome to stay. And they said, I got to go. I got to call. And they, I mean, the Holy Spirit immediately flooded that room. That's the kind of favor we want to have. It just reminded me, where people are on the cusp of eternity, that you can walk in the room and say, Jesus is coming for you. And he's going to transcend this dimension, and you'll see him, but we won't. Or the lady that's sitting in that chair, whoever the lady is, when that happens in the next few days. Like I said, Bill, he, I think he's coming tonight, but if he's not, I'll be here tomorrow. And that happened a couple times. But last time I saw him, I said, I think he's coming soon, Bill. And he had his eyes open. He was like, that's what he did. And he came, and Bill's gone. We want favor. We want power, dunamis power, Acts 1-8. That's what we want, to be his witnesses, dunamis power. And that's what favor is. It's the outpoint of the Holy Spirit to function with the full power and authority of the kingdom in that situation. It's, it's supernatural. It's not you and me. And that's what we need. That's what our country needs. That's what this planet needs. Is spirit-filled men and women who have favor from the Lord that he makes us fruitful, he's multiplying his work in us, and he's confirming his covenant through us, the new and everlasting covenant. And he's walking with us, verse 12. We need to be these people. And I know you know this, but we need to be reminded twice a week now. We're just being reminded of things, like Peter says, that we need to be reminded of, because there's a lot of static right now. And we need, we need to have the right frequency and the right power. And we need to be spirit-filled. So it was all there for them, day to day, week to week, year to year, to see, to see his hand, his personal touch in the early rains, to see his personal touch in the latter rains, to see his personal touch in the harvest, how far it went, to be able to declare that to your children. When we get to Deuteronomy, we get a lot of good stuff about that, where just to declare to your children his faithfulness to you, year after year after year, when you keep the feast, year after year after year, to just be able to declare that. That's what we want to do. That's what we're sharing with our kids and our children's children. And the people around us, that's what we're in the home groups, that's what we're sharing, God's faithfulness, his favor upon us till we breathe our last. God's walking with us, we're walking with him. And whatever is going on out here, it doesn't matter other than the fact that we're supposed to overflow into it. We're the church. We're salt and light. Verse 14 the rest of the chapter, well, through 39, is tough because it, it, it compounds us. And we've seen people do things like this in their lives. So we pick it up, verse 14. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments and despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I will do this to you. Now, this is their context of their covenant. The New Testament has some similar stuff, but not quite like this. I will even appoint terror over you, waste and disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. 
I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. And if by all these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered to the hand of your enemy. When I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall break your bread in one oven, and they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also will walk contrary to you in fury, and even I will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and eat the flesh of your daughters, which, of course, happened during the sieges with the Babylonians. That's on the biblical record, of course. Verse 30. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations, and I will draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate and your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate. It shall rest for the time it did not rest on your Sabbath when you dwell in it. Of course, we know from the record that when the Jews went into captivity for 70 years, it was 70 Sabbath years that were owed the land that God gave them. So he actually did this. It's on record. Of course he did this because he said he would, and it's on record for us in the Old Testament and other places. Literally, they were out of the land for 70 years because they owed the land 70 Sabbath years. Verse 36. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into the heart and the land of their enemies. The sound of shaken leaves shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword when no one pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquities in your enemies' lands. Also in their fathers' iniquities, which are with them, they shall waste away. When I read this passage, and maybe it happens for you too, I can think of people who knew the goodness of the Lord and walked away from the Lord, and this describes their life. I've watched this happen to people. Having like the parable of the soils where they, you know, they rejoice and then under persecution they wilted, they didn't have root and they fell away and this became of their life. I've seen people where the cares of life choke out the good stuff and they harden their heart toward the Lord and this becomes their life. I've seen this. In fact, there really isn't a better description to describe someone who's at war with God than that they shall waste away. You watch all these people that are blaspheming against Jesus Christ right now in our country. How many of them went to church at one time? How many went to Christian schools? Catholic schools, where Jesus is the Son of God. What accountability. You see, to whom much is given, much is required. And to be so set apart, to have all these special blessings, and to not be like animals of the nations around you, and to... Walk away from that and regress and degress to actually be worse than the nations around you, which is what happened to the Jews. 
what could be worse than that? It's the worst thing imaginable. To have no power to stand before your enemies, to run when no one's pursuing you. But this is what happens. This is what happens when you're given over to a depraved mind, to a deceived and depraved heart, Romans 1. This is what happens. You, you go nuts. And there's no blessing. There's no power. There's just death. Because God said in the book of Galatians, do not be deceived as a man or woman sows, so shall they reap. And if you sow to the spirit, you'll reap life. But if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. God is not mocked. And he never has been, and he never will be. People can blaspheme. They can shout down. They can cancel Jesus if they want to. But in the end, this is universe. This is planet. He's got the title deed in Revelation 5. And he's coming in glory, and he's coming to reign. And what you see here is nothing new under the sun. Because if you read the book of Revelation, which I'm going through my devotions, and you see the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls, this is like, a, this is like the seven, the seven bowls, just like this. I mean, judgment after judgment, a massive cataclysmic level, and people still don't repent. Just, and for all this, it says, and for all this, they did not repent. And they seek death, and they can't find it. In the human experience, there, we're surrounded by people who know better than to do what they do, who know there's a God, who know in many cases that Jesus is the Son of God, and they fight that and they resist that to such a point that they rage against the Lord with such intensity, and in the end, they waste away. The Lord always has the final say. And whether we get good kings or bad kings, good judges or bad judges, we're all held accountable. So all the blasphemers, they have their timeline where they can blaspheme, but then they're going to stand before the Lord and give an account. That's why it says in Revelation, what's pure is pure still, and what's defiled is defiled still. Because once it's in eternity, it is what it is. You can be defiled for all eternity because you're defiled on earth, or you can be pure for all eternity because you're pure on earth through the faith and the righteous faith, through faith in Christ Jesus. When you know the Old Testament, you study Kings and Chronicles, and you see that these things happen, it's so, it can be disheartening, but it's still history, and it's, it happened. And we just don't want it to happen to us. So we have to ask ourselves, do we want to have God look upon us favorably and make us fruitful and multiply good things in our life, the character of Christ, the relationships around us, the, the children, the family, extended family, relatives, whatever, do we want to have him look favorably upon us, make us fruitful, multiply us, and confirm his covenant with us? Or do we want to waste away? Because those are the two choices. And we have to help people understand it's you're fruitful and you have all the blessings, or you're not fruitful and you're wasting away and you waste your life. You see some of the mug shots of these people destroying stuff, and you think like, for what? There's such a better calling on your life. There's just, every life has so much potential. What happened? Like, what goes wrong with people that they just think they can be lawless and loot and burn and destroy hardworking people's property, black and white people? Like, what goes on in your mind? That you show up and just shoot people because you think you can and you're above the law. And now, or you throw firebombs at, at, at government buildings and now you get arrested and you're going to go to jail for five, six years. And you just thought it was all fun, like it was just a party at the pier or something. You can be fruitful or you can waste away. 
But one thing for us, because most of us are very fruitful in this room, is we need to be empathetic, prayerful, compassionate, and exhortative for other people to help them not do that. Amen? God forbid that someone does this that we know, that they didn't do it without having to step over us on their journey to destroying their life. And only one life soon will pass. It's appointed a minute to die once. Verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity, now this is the good news. I'm glad God has verse 40. <laughs> I think we all are. I think we know verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness and which are unfaithful to me, and that they have also walked contrary to me, and also have walked contrary to them, I have walked contrary to them and have brought them to the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I'll remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I'll remember. I'll remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbath when it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they're in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord, their God. But for their sake, I'll remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. So it's when you look at this chapter 26, it's good news. You can just set yourself, as Pastor Chuck used to say, under the spout where the glory comes out. You can put yourself right there in the fast lane of blessings, or you can put yourself right there where they shall waste away. We make our choices, self-determination, the human experience is there. But this, this wonderful grace factor on the back end, the safety net, and of course, this is what happened with Israel. Because people like Daniel and Esther did rise up in distant lands, and they did lead their people, they did save their people, and the people did come back. Thus, Jesus came to the nation of Israel as their king, because they were in the land, even under Roman occupation, but they, they were in their land. God did remember the land. They did accept their guilt, and they did make things right, and they did come back. So God was faithful to hear their prayers. And if you look at like the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, where they have the public prayers and they're all assembled together, it's very powerful. On 9-11, after 9-11 it happened 19 years ago, and then President Bush declared a national day of prayer. So 9-11, I think, happened on a Tuesday, and it was like by Friday was a national day of prayer, if I recall. I remember at Calvary Christian Mesa with Pastor Chalk, the sanctuary was full. But he pulled from the Nehemiah text, where they all confessed their sins. The book of Nehemiah has a wonderful segment where they get up publicly, and they're confessing their sins, exactly like what we just read in this chapter, saying we did do this, and we are now believing in your promises, what you promised, that if we do confess our sins, you will restore us. So this is really important because we saw it happen with Israel in the Old Testament. We know it happens with the church. It happens with individuals. And so this is the hope. It's the thief on the cross. We can visit anyone who has a breath of life and, and encourage them that they can be forgiven. They need to forgive others. Christ will forgive them. They're dying. They, they need to forgive others right now. Let it go. And we forgive you, 
Christ forgives you. And you can quote the thief on the cross. You can quote the promises. The one that calls out to me, I'll by no means cast out. You, you, you know, there's like six or eight verses you can just roll right through in five minutes with someone on their deathbed. And you're extending them the same invitation Christ did to the thief on the cross. This is available. This back end of this chapter is what we can offer people at any time who have train wrecked their lives. This back, this is my sister's life. All those years homeless and out of her mind. And I'm so grateful because for all this sorrow, my sister caused my mom and caused me personally to be able to, you know, have this ongoing text message with her where she's sending me photos from San Diego today and pictures of Jimmy serving with San Diego Police Department and her son and all these things and share her world. And to have this time with my sister, it's because she did humble herself. She did say she was sorry. She did make it right. And God did heal her. And it's a hope. So when we look at people, we can't lose hope for anyone. But they got to do what only they can do. We got to do what only, we, only you and I can humble ourselves. People can pray for us to humble ourselves, but when we've gone wrong, we got we to do the humbling. And we got to do the crying out. No one else can do it for us. But we can encourage others when they need to as well. Now, chapter 27 is like a little, almost like a parenthetical kind of chapter. And there's a, there's a, a wrap-up thought for the whole book right here. So we'll, we'll read through this. Verse 1 of chapter 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man consecrates by vow certain persons to the Lord, according to your valuation... If your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. And if from 5 years old to 20 years old, the valuation of a male shall be 20 shekels and for a female, 10 shekels. And if from a month old to 5 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 5 shekels of silver. And for a female, your valuation will be three shekels of silver. And from 6 years old and above, if it is a male, your valuation will be 15 shekels for a female, 10 shekels. But if he is too poor, and we could say she, if she's too poor to pay your valuation, then he shall present himself before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of him who bowed. The priest shall ascribe a value, a value to them. If it is an animal that men may bring as an offering to the Lord, all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy. He shall not substitute or exchange it, good for bad or bad for good. If he, if he at all exchanges an animal for an animal, then both it and the one exchange for it shall be holy. If it is an unclean animal, which they do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the animal before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for it, whether it's good or bad, as the priest sets the value, so it shall be. But if he wants to redeem it back to himself, then he must add one-fifth to your valuation. So let's talk about this for a minute, just so I don't lose you as we continue on with this valuation. This is not required offerings. This is not like the sin offering or trespass offering. This is, this is free will. So this is like you and me saying like, man, I just, I, like, I want to get on a plane and join Franklin Graham in D.C. Like, you know, you know how much it costs you right now? You can get there for 330 bucks. John Wayne, you can do it. You can do it Friday. You'd be D.C. You'd be Dallas by Friday night. I looked it up today. He's like, you know, I just, I just did something I want to do. Like, if you want to do it, you can do it. I just, I just want to do it to the Lord. I, I want to consecrate myself to the Lord for this weekend, show him that I love him, that I care about the church, I care about our country, I care about all ethnicities, I care about every life on this planet. I'm going to go to D.C., and I'm going to do that. You can do that. you got to rent a car, but you can sleep in the car if you really, you know, I mean, there's things you could do. You make it work, you know, like, you can do it. 
Or like, I have a car and I want to donate it to the church and I just want to show the Lord I love him, so I'm going to donate this car, this, this property to the church. Okay, so in an agri-society, first of all, someone says, you know, I just want to dedicate a month of my life to the Lord. Now, some of you have actually said, I'm going to, take a, a, I'm going to spend 30 days just seeking the Lord. Some of you have done that. I know that. So you're basically saying, like, I'm, I'm giving myself to the Lord this way. Now, we know that Samson was dedicated to the Lord. We know that our daughter Hannah is Corbin. She was dedicated to the Lord. So it's no wonder she's a pastor's wife in Bureau Beach, Florida at the age of 30. That was, we gave her to the Lord, and we didn't force it. God just moved it that way. But the idea is that, you know, we love the Lord so much, I want to I want to just give this extra dedication to the Lord. And you might say, I'm going to dedicate, like, the military. I'm going to be a career uh, Marine, I'm going to do 20 years service, you know, from 40 to 60 for the Lord. Well, remember, it's an agri-society. So you say, like, why are the women worth less and the guys worth more? Well, it's an agri-society. So probably the, the work level, more naturally, men be, generally can physically do more than women in a work zone like that. That's possible. But you know what? It's just the way it is. And, you know, and sometimes the women are, are one-third and then they're, they're half or in the over 60. The men depreciate, but the women maintain their value. You catch that? The men are 15 shekels. Women are 10 shekels. they catching up, whatever, whatever the Lord's doing. It's distinct and different. Under five, prime age, and elderly. Like, that's the way God set it up. So, again, it's one of those things like, that's just the way God did it. But the idea is like, hey, I'm going to commit myself to the Lord this way, and we're going to serve the Lord this way. So you could dedicate yourself to the Lord in an extra way like that. If that's how you felt led, like I'm just, I'm just going for it. I'm just all in with this, and this is what I'm going to do. Now with an animal, it's a little bit different. It's kind of like the car, right? So I have this animal. I have a donkey. Let's pretend I have a donkey. I got a donkey. I want to dedicate it to the Lord. I just love the Lord so much. I was just praising the Lord today and thinking like on some of the Davidic Psalms, and I just like, you know, this donkey. It's like a donkey, man. It's like, yeah, this donkey doesn't give me a lot of trouble. He works hard, so I'm going to, I want to dedicate this donkey to the Lord. But I really, I've got extra money. I'm doing good, so I'm going to take this donkey down to the temple. I'm going to dedicate the donkey. But I really want this donkey. But I, I want to show the Lord I love the Lord. So I'm going to dedicate this donkey. Full value. So I'm going to sell it. I'm going to donate all the money of the donkey. It's unclean, so they can't sacrifice it, right? That's why it's a donkey. You can't sacrifice a donkey. It's unclean. So I'm going to sell this donkey for 100 bucks. And I'm going to, so the donkey's worth 100 bucks. I'm going to dedicate it to the temple. I'm going to show the Lord my livelihood comes through this donkey. The donkey's yours. I'm dedicating it. And then you tell the priest, so here's the 100 bucks for the donkey. But I really, I really need this donkey. <laughs> so I want to I have this donkey back, okay? He's a good donkey. So I'm going to dedicate the donkey. It's full value of $100 for the donkey. Plus, I'm going to get him back. So it's a 20%. You catch the 20% there. So I'm going to get the 20%. So I dedicate the donkey to you guys, give you the full price of the donkey. Plus 20% on top of that, I get the donkey back. So it's like I dedicate him to you, but he's still working for me. Now, that might sound complicated, but that's exactly what God did here. He allows you to give free will offerings. You want to, you want to give a house? Give a house. You want to give the donkey? Give a donkey. Give the car? Give the car. It's like, you want to give the car? Get the tax deduction? Give the car? Give the tax deduction. But it's not anything that you have to do. That's the main thing. Like, it's not something that you have to do. You want to go to Bible college? Go to Bible college. You want to go to school of ministry? Go to school of ministry. If that's what you want to do. You want to go to school of worship? Go to school of worship. No one's making you do it. If you want to do it, go for it. Do it. You want to go to Fuller Seminary? Do it. You want to go to Biola and be a theolo- theological degree? Go for it. That, that's, that's your choice. That's a big calling. You want to do it? Do it. So that's the context here with the individual and property. Donkey, if you will. Car. But then you get the house. So there's a little more here. Verse 14. And when a man dedicates his house to be holy to the Lord, then the priest shall set a value for it, whether it's good or bad, as a priest's value 
it, so it shall stand. If he who dedicates it wants to redeem his house, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall be his. So in other words, if you dedicated your house to the Lord, again, you're going to sell the house full price, cash. You're going to donate the cash to the ministry, and then you say, but I really, I really like this house, but I want, to, I'm just, I want to give you all this money that the house is worth. I, got a, I own five houses in Judea, so I'm going to sell this house, dedicate it to the Lord, give you all the money. I'm going to buy it back with a 20% increase on what it was. So I'm going to buy it back from you. So you get all the money in the house plus 20%. I still got the house, but it was dedicated to the Lord. That's, that's the flow here. Be the same principle. But again, really, as you think about it, there are people that donate houses, sale of houses, Trust, deeds, all kinds of stuff. You know, when you look at Franklin Graham's ministry, Greg Laurie, these, a lot of these ministries, they get large gifts from huge estates where people donate stuff like this because it's what they want to do. And it's a really good investment, obviously. That's what they want to do. And so, again, this is all by choice. So what God's allowing here for is to give how you want to give if you choose to give a certain way and to do so joyfully as unto the Lord and you're good. That's really what it's about. Verse 16. But if a man dedicates to the Lord part of a field of his possession, then your valuation be according to the seed for a homer of barley shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, now remember we studied the year of Jubilee. That's the measuring rod of things going toward it, things after it for value. According to your valuation shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after Jubilee, then the priest shall reckon to him the money due according to the years that remains till the year of Jubilee. It shall be deducted from your valuation. And if he who dedicates the field ever wishes to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it. It shall belong to him. So there is a consistency with verse 19, with everything so far, that if you dedicate the full price, but you actually really want it, but you want to give all the value of it to someone, to the priesthood, to the ministry, you buy it back at 20%. So you're not just giving the value, but an additional 20%. Verse 20, but if he does not want to redeem the field or sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore. But the field when it is released in the Jubilee shall be holy to the Lord as devoted field. It shall be the possession of the priest. So it sticks with the priest. Verse 22, if a man dedicates the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not the field of his possession, then the priest shall reckon to him the worth of the valuation up to the year of Jubilee. And he shall give the valuation that year as a holy offering to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, verse 24, the field shall return to him from whom he had originally bought it to the one who owned the land as possession. So in other words, if I bought property from someone else, I'm in the tribe of Judah, I buy it from someone in Benjamin, and then I want to dedicate it to the Lord, it's got 30 years of harvest that can benefit that value to the priesthood and the ministry, but still when it's the year of Jubilee, it goes back to the original person I bought it from. That guy gets it back. So what God is defining is broad giving, free will giving with clarity so no one gets lost in the equation when you're giving. It's, it's nice. It's, it's just a clarity. The year of Jubilee is so amazing. I, I kind of wish I'd done a topical on it, but Jubilee is just amazing how it just sets everything straight and recalibrates. It's the ultimate get-out-of-jail card for life because it just reboots everything. But as we said, Jesus on the cross is better than Jubilee. Verse 25, And all your valuations shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 geras to the shekel. Now, verse 26, But the firstborn of the animals, this is important, which should be the Lord's firstborn, no man shall dedicate, whether it's an ox or sheep, it's the Lord's. And if it is unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation. It shall be add one-fifth to it. Or if it not redeemed, it shall be sold according to your valuation. Nevertheless, no one devoted offering that may, a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast, or the field of possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy 
to the Lord. It goes, it goes there. No person under the ban who may become doomed or destruction among men shall be redeemed, but surely be put to death. In other words, Charles Manson, who's under a death sentence right now, up at Pelican Bay, he can't buy his way out of prison. You follow me? Like, that's what that one is. Like, hey, you're serving, you're facing death sentence for, you can't buy your way out of it, right? We see rich people trying to buy their ways out of all kinds of crimes, right? We've seen all that. This year, so many people, rich people, they try and bribe and buy their way out of evil things. Hey, if you're under capital punishment because you took a life, you can't, you can't be redeemed from that. You're gonna, you can be forgiven, but you're not in God's law in the Old Testament. Verse 20, nope, okay, so verse 30. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree is the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord. If a man wants to at all redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one-fifth to it, and concerning the tithe of the herd of the flock or whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall it be exchanged. If he exchanges it all, then both it and the one exchange for it shall be holy, shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. So really, chapter 27 is a combination of, in a sense, worship, because it's free will offerings and what people are dedicating to the Lord and they choose to above and beyond things. But it's also, in the exchange of it all, in a sense, legally, how it's handled and how God sets it up that people can do this. So there's opportunity, like someone super poor can do a free will offering. We saw that in verse 8. And people that are rich, rich that can give away their houses, they can do that as well. It's, the priests are involved in it, and they help run this. But verse 26, God makes clear that, hey, <laughs> the tithe is mine, so you don't get a double. You don't, you, don't, you don't give me your tithe and then say that's your extra offering. <laughs> that's mine. <laughs> like, that's my tithe. Like whatever opens the womb is mine, so you don't get to do like a free will offering with the tithe because that's already mine. So you can tithe. You tithe that. that and they were under that in their covenant, like the Sabbath, you tithe that. The tithe stays the same, but the offering that you give is above and beyond the tithe. The tithe is not a free will because it's, it's in place. And that's what this latter part deals with here. So here's the closing thought on this. In this chapter, we see the foundation for how they were to give. There was the obvious giving that God had for them in their covenant with the tithe. One in 10, it was all there. It was foundational. But then if they felt led to give above and beyond that, they could do under all sorts of circumstances with their life, with their, with their property, their donkey. They could do it with their sheep. They could do it with their house. They could do it with the field by which they grow stuff and their produce from it. They could do anything they wanted to that way to just show an expression of love and gratitude to the Lord above and beyond the tithe. So chapter 27 shows us there's the foundational giving and just sometimes you just feel led to, to do something more than that. Have you ever felt that way? Like times just like, you know what, I really... I just want to do more here. Like, I feel like we want to do more. I, 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 we do this, but you know, it's really on my heart to do, to do that above and beyond that. I think it's neat because God loves a cheerful giver. He's never going to, we're not under obligation, but the one sows bountifully, reaps bountifully. We know that. And I think I, I speak for all the older people in the room here. As you get older, the more you realize you just want to sow it all anyways. You just want to sow it all anyways because... It's the wisest use. It's just to, just to be generous, to sow it toward the kingdom and our time, our energy, our resources, the obvious and the extra things that we want to do. So many people are pulling back right now in fear, and I think it's important that all of us don't lose that disposition to be givers 
of who we are in our life to the Lord, in service to the Lord, to the benefit of humanity, whatever that looks like. Above and beyond is just wonderful with the Lord, whatever it is. That's what this is about. Above and beyond to his glory.